Father, we, we do pray that as we come to your word again today, Lord, that, uh, that you would speak. This is why we do what we do. We know that, that our words are prone to error, but your words are pure. And so I pray that you would speak through your word today and though my words may be mixed up in there Lord I pray that you would protect us all from me and my frailties and my failings and that you in your perfection you in your completeness would speak through your perfect word and speak to our hearts speak to our minds And change us. Change us, we pray. Lord, please save us from being those people who would go to church each Sunday and nod approvingly and never change. Just staying in the cycle of mutual acknowledgement of one another and mutual acceptance of one another to the extent that we never ever change Father expose our sin expose the frailty of our thinking expose the errors of our hearts and minds and change us free us from sin Free us from wrong thinking. Free us from wrong living. That you might be glorified as the saints equipped by your word rise up to minister in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay. James chapter 2. We find ourselves here again. As we, um, as we come to this passage that has troubled so many for so long, um, I admit again to being a little bit bemused in that I see no problem with Paul saying that we are justified by faith alone and by James saying that we're justified by works. I think the difference is context. I think both of these statements are true within their context, and I don't see that we should be having any kind of problem. Last week, as we dealt with the first three verses, we spent the bulk of our time distracted into John chapter 3. And as we saw from the end of John 2, right the way through into chapter 3, and looking a little bit further ahead beyond there as well, we understood this key foundational truth of Scripture. That there is faith that is not saving faith. There is a kind of believing that believes in Jesus, that believes in God, but isn't sufficient to be faith that leads to salvation. That's abundantly clear from John 3. 
that, that Nicodemus was the model of this kind of person. That he, like so many in the crowds around him, had seen Jesus do these amazing miracles, and he sees these miracles and he says that on the basis of this, this Jesus must be from God. And so he had faith that, that Jesus wasn't some demon-possessed man, as his colleagues were saying. He had faith that Jesus was good, that he was from God, that he was a teacher, and perhaps even that he was some kind of prophet. But that faith was insufficient for him to enter the kingdom. And so significant was the shift, the shift of understanding, the shift of belief that Nicodemus would have to go through. That Jesus said, you need to be born again so that you, who are the most qualified man in the flesh, can actually enter at ground level and be able to be part of the kingdom of God. And so when we have that as our foundation and we understand that there is a faith that is insufficient, then, then James's words shouldn't be a struggle to us. And I, I want to, another slight rabbit trail, but, but when we were reading, those of you, and I, I do encourage you um, to follow the, the Bible reading plan that we're doing as a church. I know some of you are doing your own Bible reading plan, and that's brilliant, wonderful, I'm happy that you're reading the Bible. If you're not currently doing another one, just pick up a copy from the back table and just jump in on whatever today is or tomorrow is and, and just start with us. But we have been going through many of us together, and it means we're reading the same passages at the same kind of time. Uh, I know some of us get behind here and there, but we're, we're approximately at the right pace. So we've recently just read the last few days through the book of Galatians. And I just wanted to read to you something from the book of Galatians as we come into our passage today, just so that we again have this as a foundation. Paul was talking about his salvation in Galatians 1, how he was set apart to preach to the Gentiles. Um, and he says after he was, God revealed his son, he did not immediately, I'm reading from Galatians 1 and verse 16, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So Paul was on his way to Damascus to kill Christians, and then Jesus shows up. And as a result of that, Paul is saved, and he is called to the ministry of preaching to the Gentiles. And he doesn't go to Jerusalem, he doesn't go and see the other apostles. He goes away to Arabia for three years. That, to me, is one of the most fascinating times in human history. One of the least glamorous and the least glitzy, but the most fascinating, where a guy who knew the Bible, the Old Testament as written there, so well that he, could have, he had it memorized, he could have quoted it to you, word for word, realized that he completely misunderstood it, and he went away for three years to completely re-understand it. That, to me, is just fascinating. And then, after all of that, he goes to Damascus, where he was originally going, but now with a completely different purpose. Then, after three years, 
So three years after Paul is saved, yes, he shares the gospel, yes, he lets people know he believes in Jesus, but he has, he's hidden away from, from the, the kind of the main group of apostles, the main, the main hub of Christianity. He's gone away completely separately and studied for three years. And then when he goes back, he comes up to Jerusalem and he visits Cephas, Peter. And he stays with him for 15 days. Oh, to be a fly on the wall for those 15 days, huh? To see what the, the newly saved apostle Paul is talking about with Peter. Peter's sharing about his times with Jesus, about his failings and how Christ lifted him back up. And Paul talking about his conversion. Can you just see the, the, the stuff they'd had to talk about? And then Paul saying, this is what I've been studying. This is what I've been seeing. And I've been called to preach to the Gentiles. And Peter, I've been called to preach to the Jews. What a time. And he says, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now we've spoken as we've been studying the book of James, how James, not Peter, was the guy who was looked to as the head of the early church. He was the guy that they all looked to. And what he then says in chapter 2 is, After 14 years, I again went to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I went up because of Revelation, and set before them, who privately before those who, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel I proclaim amongst the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running um, or had not run in vain. I want you to understand what's being said at the beginning of chapter 2 there because I think that we need to bring that into James chapter 2. This is really important. The Apostle Paul gets saved, he goes away and studies for three years in Arabia, and then he comes back to the Christian world. And he goes to Jerusalem and he makes acquaintance with both Peter and James, who are the most significant of the Apostles, though he didn't see any of the others. And he touches base with them after three years of studying to make sure he's on the right track. Then 14 years later, that's 17 years. Some might argue it's 14 years from the beginning, it's only another 11 years. Either 14 or 17, you take your pick, not going to fight with you. But that's a long time that Paul has now been saved. That's a long time that the man who knew the Bible like the back of his hand has had a chance to go back and study and think and process and, 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 and see what those passages were saying and how they then apply and what Jesus has accomplished by his death and how the scriptures foresaw that and what now is going to happen now that we're under the new covenant, not under the old covenant. And Paul has had 17 years to, to think on that. Have a think about what you were doing 17 years ago. Have a think about what you were thinking, what you were, what you were doing, how different you were, how different your, your thought patterns were, how different, what a different place you were in 17 years ago. Some of you can't do that, I know, you're younger. You were a glint in your parents' eyes. But that's a long time, that's my point. And after that time, he says, he goes to Jerusalem with Barnabas... And he goes up because of a revelation, and then he goes to the apostles, and to James in particular, and he says, am I on the right track here? Can you correct me if I'm wrong? Do you understand how huge that is? 
We're not talking about some wacky person who says, oh, I think the Lord's spoken to me. Or someone who ate too much cheese and has had a strange dream. They say, is God saying something to me? We're talking about an apostle who has a revelation from Jesus Christ and still feels obligated to go to the apostles to make sure that his gospel and his message is in no way unbiblical. Let's just backtrack that progression. Knows the Bible like the back of his hand, gets saved, three years of intense study, another seven, another, um, was it 17? 14, rather, years of, um, of ministry and study, and then he goes to see them to check that what he's saying is true. Now, two things from that. Number one, number one, everything that you think you believe, you check according to the apostles and the prophets. You check according to scripture. That's the foundation, right there. They may have gone to be with the Lord, but what they've left us, their ministry, their words are still with us. I don't care what you think, I don't care what you feel, I don't care what you've seen, or what you think you know, you check it with scripture. Consistently and honestly. What was it that James said? Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. When it comes to the Bible. Let the Bible instruct us. Just be reminded afresh of this very recently. How easy it is for us, for our children, for our family, for our friends, for those who we grew up with in the faith, just to be sucked into the world and into its way of thinking. Always, always, always be sure to stand upon the foundation of scripture. But secondly, Paul is checking up with James to make sure that his doctrine is right. Fast forward many centuries, and the Apostle Apostle Paul is now the one who is being checked to see if James is right. See how weird that is? But Martin Luther, for example, might say, I don't really like what this guy James is saying. I find it very difficult he's in the Bible. We need to just go and check with Paul and make sure that what Paul, what James is saying, checks out with Paul. Now I say all of this to you because I'm about to teach you the rest of James chapter 2. And what we do in our churches today, those of us who believe in justification by faith, as we should... Because we are saved by faith and not by works that no man should boast. What we tend to do when we come to James chapter 2 is to act apologetically and to check James to make sure he lines up with Paul. Like Paul is our higher standard of scripture and James you've got to get in line. You've got to make sure that you're in line with Paul. It's kind of like, you know, we sometimes mock the people who hold you know, in the red letter Bibles, like, like Jesus, Jesus said stuff, let's put it in red, make it more important. It's like, dude, he wrote the whole thing. One way or another. It's all the words of God, right? But are we not guilty sometimes of doing that with the Paul's writings? If you're doing your Bible reading plan, here's a challenge. Take, take Paul's letters and hold them in your fingers And look how much of that that is compared to the rest of the Bible. 
Even better, every time Paul uses the word mystery, look it up, and then you'll find stuff that Paul's coming up with that's new. If he doesn't use the word mystery, presume that it's not new, and he's just reading his Old Testament, and reading Jesus, and, and, and just going on the basis of those foundations. All of this is to say that it's deeply ironic that when Paul, after ministering for 17 years, still was under the authority of James and wanted to check and make sure that even though he had a revelation, that he somehow hadn't got that confused and misapplied it, and he checked with James to make sure that was okay, the, the deep irony of us checking James against Paul to make sure that he fits in line is ridiculous. We need to let this text speak and speak clearly and speak loudly because we need to hear its message. James knew Paul. Paul knew James. They knew each other's messages and they did not have any contradiction. That is clear. So we should not come to this passage thinking that it's any way contradictory or problematic. And so as we saw last time, just wrapping up where we were in those verses, the analogy was used, well, let's start with the opening statement. What good is it, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that save faith save him? In other words, like we saw with Nicodemus, is it possible to have some kind of faith that doesn't save? Yes, absolutely it is. And what is James saying here? He's simply saying... Um, if you don't have works, maybe you haven't got the right kind of faith. And that's absolutely in line with the teaching of Jesus too. And so the example was given, and again just recapping and rushing through, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things that is needed for the body, what good is that? That is simply an analogy, and the answer is, duh, it's no good at all. You know? It's like, you know, I can't pay my bills. Well, you know, thoughts and prayers. And th then what's the difference? You still can't pay your bills. It's not to devalue prayer in any way. It's just simply to say that, that, that nothing has changed in that scenario. And so he says, as an analogy, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What he's saying is simply this. If you go and say, I have faith, I believe in Jesus. Oh, hallelujah, I believe in Jesus. And that faith doesn't produce works. You are as useless as the person who sees somebody in need and wishes them well. You have done nothing for those people. And your faith in Jesus equally has accomplished nothing. If those words are challenging to us, if that theology is somehow shaking us, we have got problems. This should not be in any way problematic or difficult. There is a kind of faith that is dead. A kind of faith that does not save, that does not produce life, that isn't sufficient to be born again. And the biggest giveaway of that is works. That's the biggest giveaway. A lack of works. A faith that allows itself to exist in a vacuum of ministry. We've created this problem, haven't we, in the church today? 
Why is it that Christians feel so awkward in James chapter 2? Why is it problematic to some? Because we've created an environment where people can file in, be fed, go, mmm, good sermon, and then they can have emotional times of worship where they oh, we love you, Jesus, we love you, Jesus. And then they can wear their kind of Christian t-shirt, have their Christian bumper sticker, listen to contemporary Christian music, just immerse themselves in a Christian subculture. And there they are, say, well, I have faith, I have faith. It means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. And so James goes on, verse 18. But someone will say to me, you have faith and I have works. Some people suggest that the verse here should be worded as a question. Do you have faith? I have works. In other words, is that all you have to offer me? You you have faith? Well, I have works. Let me put it in Pauline terms, if that helps you. In the way that Paul would say it. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. I believe that Jesus has forgiven my sins. That's great. What sins have you overcome because of Jesus? How's your life been changed? What did you used to think that you now think differently? What did you used to do that you now do differently? What do you used to desire that you now desire differently? Do you see how that works? We can all say, hallelujah, Jesus, Jesus, all we like. We can talk about how Jesus has set us free from our sin. But if all that means to you is that you've got a ticket to heaven at the end of the day, then you've misunderstood Paul in Romans 6. Forget about James chapter 2. The reality is, is that a saving faith saves. It saves us from the power of sin. And that has to be seen visibly in our lives. And it's not simply a case of, well, you know, maybe I don't do enough good works. Do I need to give more to charity? Do I need to help more old ladies cross the road? No, we're not talking in those kind of terms. We're talking about a transformation of character where the things that that you think, the things that you do, and the things that you desire have been utterly transformed because those things were so meshed with your sin. So corrupted by your sin that they, that they were so ungodly that they needed to be completely changed. And now you find yourselves wanting to do things that you didn't want to do previously. Go places you didn't want to go. And the desire to do things is now diminished to some degree. Is it complete? Is it a finished work? Oh gosh, no. If it is, tell me your secret. But there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus that we should continue in this cycle of just, of just living a life of frustration because there's no power, because we are empowered by the Holy Spirit who indwells us so that we can overcome sin in a practical day-to-day basis. And if we're not experiencing that, is our faith dead? We're not talking about perfection. And I'm certainly not trying to preach 
to gentle, sensitive souls and for you to feel beaten because you don't do enough. It's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the fact that when Jesus saves you, he doesn't just save you from the eternal consequences of sin. He saves you from the power of sin and that a true living faith is something where there is this transformation of of your mind, of your life, and even of your desires. And if you have no understanding of what I'm talking about, then plead with God to save your soul. See, I think we're on the same page as James, aren't we? Paul and James agree, and hopefully we do too. So, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You see how that works? That's what we've been talking about. That's how it is. You believe that God is one, and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You see, this is an important point. That we have so equated the word faith with merely an intellectual agreement and assent that we just read that word into script, that the idea into scripture whenever we see the word faith. And that is something I believe that is alien to scripture. The word faith, the word belief and believe has got far more to do with trust than any sort of intellectual agreement. And this verse really exposes the frailty of that thinking. Do you believe that God is one? Yes, I do. Brilliant. Well, so does Satan. I think Satan's theology is far better than most churches sometimes. Does that do him any good? Absolutely not. Because he's an enemy of God. But he understands his enemy better than many who will call God their friend, their Lord. And so it is that it's perfectly possible for the demons to know who God is and to shudder at his sovereignty and to shudder at his might. Meanwhile, Christians who say, oh, we love you, Jesus, we love you, Jesus, shudder at the circumstances of life because they have no real faith in the sovereignty of God. That's the reality of it. And so there is a need in us all for our faith to be a saving faith, a faith of trusting in God and not simply one in believing and in some theological truth. Do you want to be shown, verse 20, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Let me just, let me just say something here. Foolish person is strong language. The word fool in the book of Proverbs is almost always used to refer to someone who is unsaved. James is getting pretty close to the line here. He's basically saying, if if this is problematic to you, this way of thinking, you're kind of thinking foolishly, which is kind of borderline James saying you're not saved. Which is kind of what the whole passage is saying, in that he's saying, if you think that you're saved and all you have to present in evidence is, I believe in Jesus, 
I believe he is the son of God. If that's all you have, then you're in agreement with demons. That belief and that trust in him. Do you think that, do you think that Satan believes that Jesus died on the cross? You betcha he did. He wanted him to. Do you think that Satan believes that Jesus rose again on the third day? Absolutely. It was the worst day of his existence. When he realized he'd been duped and that God had had, had the victory at the very moment that he thought he'd had victory. So of course Satan believes that Jesus is the son of God and that he dies and that he rose again on the third day. But what he doesn't do is trust in him for salvation because for him there is no salvation on offer. And it's, it's our trusting in that. Is our saying, yes, I do intellectually agree with it, but I trust in it. This is my hope and this is my assurance. Not in my own strength, not in the things that I do, but that in Christ did it for me. That's the kind of faith. And that kind of faith, not trusting in my works, not trusting in anything I can do to be right with God, but trusting that Jesus died in my place for my sins... And that he did it because I couldn't, because works don't save, means that that kind of faith brings about works that can be seen. Not works that save, not works that make me right with God, but works that show that God has made me right by my faith. And so it is that when he says this, He uses these examples. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, James is not ignorant. Paul has gone to him and checked with him that his ministry and his message was in line with what James thought it should be. He spent time with him. He went back there 14 years later to double check that he was saying nothing that was contrary to the message of James. So James is well aware of Paul. James is well aware of Paul's teaching. Though he's not aware of Paul's writing at this point, because I believe the book of James was written before Paul had written anything. Nonetheless, do you think that Paul came up with his illustrations and his arguments for the very first time when he wrote them down for the first time? Or do you think that maybe in 17 years of ministry that a few of those things have been well rehearsed? Trust me, when my first book is written, there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff. You're going to be, I remember that sermon, or I remember that sermon. Of course. So James is familiar with the teaching of Paul and the thinking of Paul. And who is it that Paul holds up as an illustration of salvation by faith alone and not by works? Abraham. That's why James chooses him. Not to contradict Paul, but to do exactly the opposite and to show that they're in perfect harmony. Look at what he says. Was to... Abram our father, was not Abram our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, we know the story of Abraham, right? God says, hey Abraham, I'll have you, you're, you're the one. 
gonna, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and I want you to go, and I want you to leave your family behind, and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And so Abram says, okay, God, I'll go to the land that you're showing me, and I'll leave my family behind, but apart from Lot, he can come. And thus, a pattern of compromise epitomizes Abram's life. And even after it is absolutely clear that he is saved, the expression that Abraham... And I think this is crucial. James quotes this verse, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That quotation comes from Genesis 15, quite early on in the whole proceedings. And it, it comes from Genesis 15 and verse 6, and it comes from a point where I believe Abraham was first saved. Where Abraham has this covenant with God, and he completely trusts in God, and he trusts in the promise. God says, I'm going to do this, and God says, you've trusted in me, Abraham. You've trusted in me, and that is as good as righteousness for you. And so is Paul right? Absolutely Paul's right. Abraham was not saved because of any works that he did. Abraham was saved because he had faith. And Genesis 15 makes that clear. So see what James is doing here. James is referring to an incident that was much, much later. When, when, when Abraham received promises that he believed, and then his belief in those promises was credited as righteousness, right? One of those promises of God is that you're going to have a son. And that promise was delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. And we go through the book of Genesis and we see Abraham's faith being shown to be weak again and again and again and again. And finally, Isaac is born. Finally, Isaac is born. Remember, when Abraham believed and it was given credited as righteousness, Ishmael hasn't even been born. We've got to go through a whole process of Abraham's faltering faith. We've got decades of time. And then finally, Isaac is born. And then Isaac grows up. And when he is you know, significantly older, he's taken up the mountain to be offered as a sacrifice. And finally, Abraham gets it right. Everything in the story of Abraham to that point is an, is an illustration and a model of somebody who's saved who keeps messing up. Somebody whose faith is frail. Somebody whose faith is insufficient in their lives. But we know he's saved, Genesis 15. He trusted the promises of God, is credited to him as righteousness. We know he's saved. And yet, he is a model of weak faith. And then finally, decades later, he is the model of perfect faith. Now, take that into what James says here. Was Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And then James then quotes the passage speaking of his salvation by faith that happened decades earlier. James isn't ignorant of that. What's he saying? He's saying, yes, Abraham was saved by faith and not by works. But the fact that he is saved is justified, is shown, is proven 
And finally, he gets to this point in his life, and we all go, look, a model of faith. And for most of his life, he was a model of weak faith, of frail faith. This is the guy who said to his wife, go join, show yourself a single, go join the harem of the guy there, otherwise he might kill me. Twice. That, that's the guy, right? And, and we, we have him in Hebrews 11 as the model of faith. Yeah, you want to know what faith looks like? Look at Abraham. I'm kind of looking there, but I'm not seeing faith. And it's, oh, you, what chapter you're in? We haven't quite got there yet. Isn't that our testimony, many of us? What chapter are we in? We haven't quite got there yet. What James is saying is this. He's saying it's all well and good saying that you have faith. But there needs to be proof of that. Just like there was for Abraham. And so, he's called the friend of God. And he concludes in verse 24, you see that a person, having used the illustration of Abraham, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That is that verse that has caused so much trouble and has caused people so many sleepless nights and has frustrated so many great minds. And in context, it's not a problem at all. James is not disputing the fact that Abraham was saved by faith alone. What he's saying is that faith doesn't come alone. That that faith over time shows itself to be true faith. I've been a Christian now for best part of 37 years this Easter. I've seen many of my friends profess faith as well. I've seen family members profess, profess faith as well. And then subsequently walk away you don't have to be a, dec- a Christian for that many decades to see faith professed turn into faith fail from faith professed to faith denied normally with faith unsure somewhere in the middle and then we understand I think I, I hope we understand that these people profess faith, but there wasn't proof of that faith until the difficult stuff came, the hardship came, the trials came, and they were found on the mountain with a knife in their hands saying, I trust you even to the point of the resurrecting, resurrecting the son of promise. Faith maturing and being seen by works. That's what James is talking about. And so when you understand that context, then James saying a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, we should all be able to give that a hearty amen. Justified in the sense of God declaring you righteous? Absolutely justified by faith alone. But justified in the sense of being having your faith proven so that we know that your faith is something that is real and genuine and not just some false profession that you won't be that person on the last day who will say, Lord, Lord, and he says, get away from me, I never knew you. 
That kind of justification, you need works for that. And for many of us, we are going through that process of, of traveling to Abimelech and being shamed because our faith was false. Our faith was weak. It's not that we weren't Christians. It's just that our faith was weak. And, and we, we, we let God down. We, we were humiliated and we brought shame to his name. And, and, and at that point you say, well, how am I saved? And the answer is, well, we'll see. We'll see as time goes by. We'll see. We'll see. I can remember at an earlier point in my life, going through trial after trial after trial in a way that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemies, in a way that just totally and completely broke me. And I found that my faith was not as strong as I thought it was. That I intellectually agreed with doctrines such as God's sovereignty and such as God's love. But those intellectual agreements weren't grounded into a strong faith. And like Abraham, I was embarrassed and ashamed and humiliated by the weakness of my faith. My family were harmed by the weakness of my faith. My children's own beliefs were shaken by the weakness of my faith. What do you do? Get back up? And you wait for God to bring the next trial? And you pray that God sanctifies your heart, sanctifies your soul? So when the trials come again, you stand and you say, I don't want to go around this again and again. I don't want to go around the merry-go-round. I'm going to trust in you, God. It's going to be hard. I don't want to. I don't know the outcome here. This is painful, this is difficult, but I'm going to trust you. And as we trust him, our faith is proven. Our faith is shown. And our faith is justified by the works that we do, which came about by a faith that came without works. Let's be absolutely clear. We are sinners separated from a holy God and we have to place our trust in Jesus and God opens our eyes we place our trust in him and we are saved by faith alone and that that faith if it's true and genuine saving faith God will mature that faith through trials and through time over a period of years and years and decades. And you and I, we will go through experiences that will humble us, that will often humiliate us as God gradually matures us. And more and more, as we mature in our faith, we'll look at the works that come from our faith and say, you know what? This last year has sucked, but I know I'm saved. And that's what James is talking talking about. Do you see how well, by the way, now, this whole thing, justified by works, do you see how well this fits into James as we've seen him so far? 
Talking about trials, exposing us. Do we really want to live wholeheartedly for God? Do we want to find wisdom in God or wisdom in the world's way? This delineation of people. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, do you want to just, do you want to play along and say, oh, you know, I have faith, I have faith. Or do you really want to be changed so that your faith becomes evident? And if you don't, then do you really have a faith at all? James is just dividing things, making it plain one way or the other. And so he speaks of the example of Rahab in the same way Rahab the prostitute justified by works. So it was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And of course, the implied answer is yes. And those of you familiar with all these kind of structure in scripture now, you will spot the inclusio. Here's the example of Abraham. Here's the example of Rahab. And what do we have in the middle? We have the central important statement. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And he concludes in verse 26, as shall we. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If you've ever seen a person who is dead, maybe you've been with someone as they've died. Obviously in in my line of work, that's happened a fair few times. You you, uh, console the families of those who had faith when they pass on as Rosalinda's fond of saying, when they're promoted to heaven. We console the families as they look at the body and we say, they're not here. They've gone. They're with Jesus now. This is just their shell that remains. And we know that. That's true, right? James uses the same example. You look at a body of a dead person and you know they're not here. They've gone. This is just a shell remaining. And it's ridiculous to suggest otherwise. Absolutely ridiculous. It's laughable. We're going to get them to have a conversation? You're going to get them to walk and talk? There was a, there's a famous movie from years ago called Weekend at Bernie's where they famously had, uh, some of you know, you're kind of laughing away, but where, where, where their bosses, I, think, I don't even remember, it was, I haven't seen it for decades, but the, it, it's, it's kind of infamous in history because the boss has died and they have to try and pretend he's alive for a weekend. And, it, and it's a, and you know, cue hijinks comedic value because it's just so ridiculous that you could somehow pretend that someone who is dead is alive and yet we have entire churches entire affiliations and denominations that are set up on that entire premise that we create a weekend at Bernie's kind of church where people can if they if you just throw your hands in the air enough and you say hallelujah enough, then you're saved and you're okay and no one's going to ask the awkward questions like, is the heart still beating? It's, it's a real problem that we have. 
that people think that they're Christians when they're not. And it's a real problem that we have that people don't have assurance of their faith when God has credited their faith as righteousness. And so James, with incredible care and precision, says, here's Abraham. He trusted God and he's saved by faith alone. But we see that faith is true and that faith is proven and justified decades later. That's the model. And that's what James has been talking about from chapter 1 and the beginning. What kind of Christian are you going to be? Are you going to be the kind of Christian who we don't know if you're alive or dead, quite frankly? We're going to prod you and poke you, see if you make a noise. Wonder if that squeak is just some sort of trapped gas that we're letting out or whether that you're actually vocalizing something and you're alive. That isn't to condemn anyone and it's certainly not to get anybody to think that somehow, oh, I've got to do more of this and more of that. I've got to do, 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 do. Make sure my... No, no, no. You, you don't do works to prove your faith. Your faith is proven by the works. That's a, that's a, a crucial distinction. Because there's too many people who are trying to say, look, I'm doing this, look, I'm doing this, look, I'm doing this. And they're, they're going into sanctification by works. And that, that's ridiculous. God is going to sanctify you as much as he's going to justify you. But what is your desire and your role in this process as God seeks to sanctify you? Is your faith genuine? Shall I put it another way? When the testing of your faith comes and produces steadfastness, Steadfastness will then have its full effect and then you'll be perfect and complete. You've been going through trials recently? Have you been perfect? Are you lacking in anything? James says, well, if you do lack wisdom, chapter 1, verse 5, ask God and he'll give it generously without reproach. But ask in faith. Do you want it? That's the question. Do you want it? Trials come and they expose whether we have been perfected yet or not. And isn't it interesting that in chapter 2, in the passage we've just read, he draws us to that by saying... In verse 22, faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Same word as in chapter 1. Drawing our minds back. Is your faith complete? Has the work been completed? Are you lacking in wisdom? Are you lacking in your walk? Are, your, are you still compromising? Is your faith still faltering? And most importantly of all, do you want God to change that? Do you want to be someone whose works proves their faith? We say, well, yeah, of course I do. Okay, let me reword it. 
Do you want to be someone who walks your son up a mountain to kill him? Not literally, of course. But you get my point. What did it take for Abraham's faith to be proven? Do we really want to sign up for that? Or would we rather just play the church game? Sing a few songs, nod our head at a sermon, get on with our lives. That's what James is asking. In chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, this is what the book of James is all about. And so we will keep coming back to this question week after week. I will close this week by simply asking you that question again in the terminology that James has just used in this passage. Do you want your faith to be justified by your works? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would speak through this message. Not now. We trust you've done that. But in the hours ahead, in the days ahead, in the weeks ahead, and so on and so forth. Are we double minded? Are we double souls? Do we want a life of comfort, to play church, to hide away, to avoid difficult decisions, to avoid trials, to constantly feel the need to protect ourselves and to adjust to our circumstances, to fit in and to, to not be harmed? Or do we want to be people of faith trusting in you so clearly, so unequivocally, so outrightly that the world sees our faith by our works. It sees our trust. It sees us living out our trust, living as people who trust you, living as people who fear you and nothing else. God, help us, help us to repent of our wicked hearts, of our wrong desires, of the desire just to avoid all the trouble and the difficulty that comes with following you. As we approach Easter time, and again we focus as we should daily on the sacrifice of your son. May our faith grow, be strengthened. May our hearts be changed, our minds be changed, our desires be changed, and our deeds be changed. May you be glorified through us because you are mighty and because you are good. Amen. Thank you.